Tonight, we will begin telling the story of the Six-Day War, whose 50th anniversary we are swiftly approaching. For Israel, the Six-Day War was a lopsided and miraculous victory. It gave them strategic depth and defendable borders, borders that more than tripled in size. They conquered and reunified Jerusalem. It implanted within them a spirit of pride and security, uh, but also false invincibility and arrogance that came back to bite them very harshly six years later during the Yom Kippur War. For the Arabs, it was a total and humiliating defeat, a loss they vowed to avenge. Now, the significance of this war cannot be overstated. All future Israeli-Arab relations were shaped by this conflict. It led to the War of Attrition immediately after Yom Kippur War six years later, Black September 1970, and the Munich Massacres of 1972 can directly be traced back to this conflict. Uh, on the positive side, it created the conditions for the Camp David Accords of the late 70s and the peace with Egypt in exchange for the territory gained the various intifadas of the 80s and the 2000s, the Oslo Accords of 1993, the disengagement from Gaza in 2005 are all directly related to these six days in June in 1967. So what's the background to this war? We know in May of 1948, Israel declared itself a sovereign nation. The day after the Declaration of Independence, five Arab armies, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq declared war on Israel. This was an attempt to smother and squash the nascent state of Israel in infancy to not allow it to get its footing. At the end of this 13-month war, Israel ended up with all the land allocated to it by the 1947 United Nations Partition Plan, as well as about 60% of the land assigned to the Arab state which, of course, never happened. Now, Jordan, called then Transjordan, they occupied, they annexed the majority of the West Bank. And Egypt, they took control of the Gaza Strip. In 1956, the second Arab-Israeli war broke out, known as the Sinai Campaign, alternatively called the Suez Crisis. Uh, this was prompted by an Egyptian blockade of the Straits of Tehran, which is the access to Israeli ports uh, through the Suez Canal and to Africa and Asia. Moreover, Egypt, they nationalized the Suez Canal, and there was an uptick of Arab fedayeen attacks, these uh, border incursions. In October of 1956, Egypt signed an agreement with Syria and Jordan placed Nasser, the pre president of Egypt, command of all three armies. Uh, four days later, Israel, with the backing of France and Britain, they attacked. The war was a success. Israel captured the Sinai Desert and the Gaza Strip. But the ensuing diplomacy was an abject failure. All the territorial gains were reversed within six months in exchange for an Egyptian agreement to allow Israeli shipping through the Straits of Tehran and the Suez and the installation of UNEF, the United Nations Emergency Force, a UN peacekeeping force in Sinai to maintain peace. 
in the decade between the 56th war and the 67 war, which is the subject of tonight's talk, it was a good decade for Israel. They were no longer facing existential threats. They became a major player on the international scene. Everyone recognized that the dream or the notion that Israel could be swiftly destroyed, that was vanquished, and it spent the decade nation-building, building the economy, building the military. But also, over the course of this decade, the conditions that led to the Six-Day War took hold. In the Arab world, the 50s was a decade of upheaval, of revolutions, of seismic changes. Uh, in 1951, for example, one of the big players of the Six-Day War uh, is the King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, at, at the age of 15, he was with his grandfather, King Abdallah I of Jordan, and they're walking in Jerusalem to Friday prayers. And there's a gunman who attacks them. And the gunman was fearful that the grandfather, the king, would make peace with Israel and he shot him and killed him. So 15-year-old Hussein starts hunting, chasing the guy down in the streets of Jerusalem. He turns and shoots him. The bullet ricochets off a medal on the uniform given to him by his grandfather. And he survives. But his grandfather's dead. Now his father, Talal, he was mentally unwell. He was a schizophrenic. So he was king for 13 months until he had to abdicate the throne so at the ripe age of 17, King Hussein becomes the king of Jordan. In 1952, there was an Egyptian military coup led by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the primary foe of the Israelis in the conflict. Uh, they overthrow the government. In 1956, he becomes president. Now, this was not limited to the immediate neighbors of Israel. In Iraq, for example, in 1958, King Faisal, there's a lot of King Faisals, but this particular Faisal II of Iraq, he was deposed along with his family, brutally assassinated. They took them and paraded their bodies throughout the town. The prime minister of Iraq, he, he gets dressed up like a woman. He's trying to hide from the mob. They find him and like wild animals, they just tear him to pieces. And then the government, now the revolutionary regime was very weak, and of course, whenever there's a vacuum, the Soviets come and they put their foothold in that state. Of course, there was turmoil all over the Arab world. In Lebanon, there was a civil war, and Nasser had a thing for interfering with other Arab problems. He tried to assassinate the king of Jordan, King Hussein, several times. He did actually blow up a building that contained the prime minister Pretty chaotic decade. Now, as we mentioned, the most important personality is Nasser, the, key, the president of Egypt. He's a very charismatic crowd pleaser. Uh, his speeches electrified the Arab world. He was a purveyor of relentless, bombastic rhetoric and hatred towards Israel. He was an expert, expert manipulator. Somehow he managed to get funding from the Soviets and the Americans. I don't know how he managed to do that. Uh, like many leaders, he was quite paranoid and he had tremendous unbridled ambition. And his worldview, sometimes called Nasserism or Pan-Arabism, 
is a geopolitical idea. All the Arabs, all the Muslim countries should unite under his leadership. So, for example, in 1958, Egypt officially merged with Syria to create the United Arab Republic. And in fact, the official name of Egypt until 1971 was the United Arab Republic. Jordan and Iraq, they merged as well in 1958. That didn't last very long. They created the Arab Federation. Both coalition fizzled, but it shows that there's an ongoing effort to have Arab unity and coalesce uh, the Arab nations together. And, of course, the one thing that unites all the Arabs more than anything else is hatred and opposition to Israel. So, for example, they invented the Palestinian cause as a proxy to attack Israel. Uh, the notion of exterminating Jews wasn't quite popular a mere 20 years or 15 years after the Holocaust. So in order to find a way to display and exhibit their hatred to Israel and the Jews, they created the Palestinians. Well, the Palestinians, they're suffering, and therefore it's a just cause to support, even if it means killing Jews along the way. And Nasser, we could go through his speeches, it would take us the whole time, but he was a very uh, vitriolic uh, spokesman against Israel. So just a few choice quotes. The only solution to Palestine, this is what he said in the United Nations, uh, is that uh, matters should return to the condition prevailing before the error, the Nakba, the disaster was committed, namely, we have to annul the state of Israel. 1964, he said, we swear to God that we shall not rest until we restore the Arab nation to Palestine and Palestine to the Arab nation. In 1965, he asserted quite poetically, our path to Palestine will not be covered with a red carpet or with yellow sand. Our path to Palestine will be covered with blood. In order that we may liberate Palestine, the Arab nation must unite, the Arabs' armies must unite, and a unified plan of action must be established. He convened the Arab summit. Uh, the Arab League Summit of 1964, when they founded the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was a, a and still is essentially a terror organization. Right away, they used you could see that they used the Palestinians and the Palestinian plight as a proxy to attack Israel. So right away, attacks are launched from Jordan, from Gaza, from Syria, and supported by all the Arab countries financially, logistically, um, and sort of a forerunner to today where we have state-sponsored terrorism with Iran supporting Hezbollah, for example, to do the dirty work. And, of course, these border incursions, these terrorist attacks would happen, followed by Israeli reprisals. And no different than the way it is today, the UN is entirely silent when Israel's attack, but when they retaliate, suddenly it gets, is so worried about innocent life. Now, King Hussein is also kind of sneaky in our story. He's duplicitous. Uh, whenever there is a terrorist attack, he apologizes to the Israelis and he arrests the terrorists, but then quickly releases them as well once the brouhaha is over. He, throughout the 50s and 60s, was conducting secret negotiations with Israel. Uh, he fed them info about Nasser. Him and Nasser really had this frenemy thing going. Uh, but he refused to sign a peace treaty with Israel because he was scared that the Arabs would come after him. He, after all, was not native to the land. Uh, his grandfather was given the land by 
Churchill in the 20s, and he cared more about preserving his throne than anything else. In Syria, there were these ongoing bombardments from the Golan Heights that fire down on the kibbutz. They have the mountains, and they look down on all the shepherds and farmers and sporadically fire on them. And it was routine throughout the 50s and 60s where farmers and shepherds were, were they're killed. It was regular, regularly happened that children would sleep in bomb shells. Now, ironically, the border between Israel and Egypt was mostly quiet thanks to the existence of the United Nations forces there, but the hostility and the rhetoric was fierce. Now, full-scale war almost broke out in 1964 and 65 over water. The prime minister at the time, Levi Shkol, who was also the prime minister during the Six-Day War, he was born Levi Shkolnik. He grew up religious. He went to yeshiva, abandoned religion in favor of Zionism, made Aliyah at 19, joined the labor movement and their leadership. He was an interesting fellow. He originated the joke, famous joke about Israel. How do you make a... How do you make a small fortune in Israel? You immigrate and you arrive with a large fortune. That's how you make make a small fortune. That was his joke. Uh, He was the Minister of Agriculture and Finance. And in 1963, Ben-Gurion, who was the founding father and the prime minister since the founding, he had to resign uh, over a controversy called the Lavon Affair from the 50s. And Levia Stroll became prime minister. Now, his conduct... In the run-up to the war, since the war would be debated for decades, in modern times, his image has improved significantly. But arguably, his greatest achievement as prime minister was overseeing the completion of the Israeli national water carrier, which was an enormous infrastructure of pipes to connect the Kinneret, the Sea of the Galilee, with the rest of the country to provide water from the north to the south and the center of the country. At the same conference, the Arab League Summit of 1964, they crafted a plan, the Arabs did, to divert two of the three water sources to the Jordan and prevent that flowing to the Canary, to the Sea of Galilee, and thus parching Israel by withdrawing a huge chunk of their water supply. So the Chizbani and the Banyas which are two rivers in Israel, northern Israel, uh, that was the plan to start diverting. So what they do, what they did was the Lebanese in the Chazbani and the Banyas in, the Syria, in, the, in Syria, they start diverting the water away from the Jordan towards their uh, water uh, uh, basins. And Israel made it very clear that this would be tantamount to an act of war. So there's these engineers digging the canals and diverting the water away from the Jordan, and Israel comes with tanks and planes and long-range artillery and start attacking them. And it was clear that the Arabs did not want to have a large-scale war, so they stopped. But these exchanges of fire continued, and indeed escalated. Another important factor that contributed to the Six-Day War was Russian-Soviet weaponry. In the 1960s, the Russians deposited massive amounts of munitions into Egypt and Syria. Uh, into Egypt alone, the Russians, led by Alexei Kosygin and Brezhnev, they poured $2 billion worth of munitions into Egypt. Uh, 1,700 tanks, 
500 fighter planes, and they actually had on the ground in Egypt 1,400 military advisors who would be actively involved hands-on in the war plan. And ironically, they still maintained diplomatic ties with Israel. But this was basically the way things were. Uh, It was normal. Israel had gotten used to living under such conditions. It was their normal way of life. In April of 1967, there was a major escalation. Uh, There was a Syrian shelling that killed some farmers. And Israel attacked, and the Syrians responded, and Israel uh, retaliated, and they sent planes and jets and tanks and artillery, and they bombed villages all over the Golan, and they shot down six Soviet MiGs. And this defeat was so complete that the Israeli jets, they did their victory laps over Damascus. And this was a terrible embarrassment for the Soviets. Uh, They were very paranoid over their, their image, the Soviet military might, and they essentially lost the war because their people, the Syrians, who they're aligned with, were so humiliatingly defeated. Now, also, Israel made it clear that they would invade Syria and overthrow the government if these guerrilla tactics and these uh, bombarding of civilians would continue. Uh, And the Soviets recognized that they had an opening. The Americans were preoccupied with Vietnam. And they figured if they could nip Israel, if they could attack and destroy Israel, they could eliminate America's presence in the Middle East. And what they started doing was feeding misinformation to the Syrians about a non-existent Israeli buildup on the border. And Israel offered to take the Syrian ambassador to bring him to the borders, bring him to the northern border in Syria, bring him to the southern border in Egypt and show them that there is no escalation, but they, they weren't interested. They didn't want to come see it. And this ratcheted up the tension and the pressure and Syria and Egypt, they invoke their peace treaty, their defense treaty. They start asking for assistance. And leading into May, there's dramatic and increased progressive escalations. So so Syria begins to move their heavy weapons into the Golan. Egypt begins planning its move into Sinai. They have a thousand tanks. They start rolling into the desert. They have a hundred thousand soldiers that they begin to march into Sinai. Now, the problem is you still have the United Nations force there, a pretty large, significant force comprised of about 4,500 soldiers from a wide variety of countries, from India, from Canada, from Yugoslavia, Sweden, Brazil, Norway, Denmark. They were not keen on starting World War III by attacking the United Nations forces. So Nasser he politely asked that the United Nations forces leave, which they promptly did, in a move that United Nations Secretary General Yu Thant would regret for the rest of his life. And this is startling. For 10 years, they're there, and the only time that they're actually needed, they pick up and they leave. The Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Ibn, he declared, quote, what use is a fire brigade which vanishes from the scene as soon as the first smoke and flames appear. Regardless, 
The United Nations leave, and the Egyptians roll in. And they take up all the United Nations positions, especially at Sharm al-Sheikh, which is in the southeastern part of the Sinai, and it's overlooking the critical Straits of Tehran that leads uh, all shipping to Israel. Alongside this military escalation, there is an installation of inflammatory rhetoric. The drumbeat of war was constant. So on May 16th, quote, this is from Cairo Radio, the existence of Israel has continued too long. We welcome the Israeli aggression. We welcome the battle we have long awaited. The battle has come in which we will destroy Israel. On May 20th, one day after the UNEF expulsion, Nasser declared, there no longer exists an international force to protect Israel. The sole method we shall apply against Israel is total war, which will result in the extermination of Zionist existence. On May 27th, Nasser again declared, our intent is the total destruction of Israel. On May 31st, the president of Iraq stated, the existence of Israel, the existence of Israel is an error which must be rectified. This is our opportunity to wipe out the nominee which has been with us since 1948. Our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. There were massive daily demonstrations in Cairo and other major cities calling for Israel's destruction. And there were also Arab military provocations. Twice they flew planes over the Demona nuclear site in the Negev setting off a panic, of course, in Israel. By the time the Israeli planes are scrambled, they're gone. In Syria, there's an escalation. They step, step, step up their shellings. Now, what about the Israelis? The Israelis didn't want war. So on May 15th that year, which was the Yom Ha'atzmaut, to avoid provocation, the government curtailed the parade to not display heavy weapons, to not be accused of provoking war. Every year, on Yom Ha'atzmaut, they have these huge parades where they take all tanks and heavy weaponry and march him along the border. And that year, Levi Yishkol said, no, this year we're not doing it. We want to tone, tone it down. We don't want to be seen as riling up our enemies. And that year as well, on Yom Ha'atzmaut, an iconic song was released. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold. This song is lamenting the loss of Jerusalem and yearning for its return. So some quotes here. The city that sits alone, Ha'ir Hashel Badad Yoshevet, in its heart is a wall. How have the cisterns gone dry? The squares and the marketplaces are empty. There's no one visiting Temple Mount in the old city. In the caves, in the stone, the winds wailed. Nobody descends to Yamamelach by way of Jericho. A few weeks later, after... The songwriter Naomi Shemer heard the paratroopers singing Jerusalem of Gold at the Western Wall. She amended the song and she wrote the final verses, which countered those verses. Quote, we return to the cisterns, the square and the marketplace. A chauffeur blows on Temple Mount in the old city and in the caves, in the stone, a thousand's suns shine. We shall return and descend to Yamamelech by way of Yericho, by way of Jericho. Now Israel, like we said, they didn't want to start war and they had good reason to avoid war. 
75% of the Israeli army were civilian reserves. Every day that the army is mobilized, the economy is at a standstill. And the longer the army is mobilized, the more likely is the economy is going to totally grind to a halt. And indeed, a few years later, is one of the reasons why they withheld from mobilizing during the Yom Kippur War is because they recognized it's such a heavy price to pay to have a huge percent of the country's workforce just stop working unless you know for sure there's actually a war. Moreover, Israel was still faced with tremendous tactical disadvantages. They lack the strategic depth to have a defensive battle. So an offensive battle was the only option. There was a common saying in the IDF. It's probably still true today. Arabs, they could afford to lose a war here and a war there. We cannot afford to lose even a single war. We lose one war, we're done forever. Moreover, Egypt, they would fight a one-front war from the Sinai attacking north. Jordan as well. They'd come in from the east attacking west. Syria likewise attacked south. Israel would be faced with a multi-front war, which is, of course, is more difficult. You have to allocate resources, and it's much more difficult. Regardless, in the beginning of May, Israel conducted a partial mobilization just in case. Now, the crisis deepened on May 22nd with the first act of war, the blocking of the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. This was a violation of the Armistice Agreements of 1956, and it's essentially an act of war. And this kicked off a whirlwind of efforts by the Israeli diplomatic team to try to reach out to the international community to help avoid the war. But every effort... Every request was rebuffed. Previous friends and allies turned their back against Israel. So France. France was a historic ally of Israel. In 1956, during the Suez campaign, they, along with with Britain, they joined forces with Israel to attack Egypt and to capture the Suez. France was the largest supplier of Israeli arms. Israeli Air Force consisted of French Mirage and Mystere, planes, and the Israeli Navy was being, was building ships, missile boats, in France, in Cherbourg. But in the run-up to the war, Abba Ibn, the foreign minister, goes to speak to President de Gaulle, and he says to him, we have an agreement from 1957 where you guaranteed this armistice agreement will have rights to go through the Straits of Tehran. So what does the Gaul tell him? The Gaul has the Gaul to respond like this. Yeah, that was 1957. Now it's 1967. Which is particularly heart- heartless given that Abba Ibn was actually the one who negotiated that particular agreement. And the Gaul warns Israel, don't attack first. Whoever attacks first will be faced with a French arms embargo. 
on June 2nd, before the war even starts, the war starts on June 5th, he declares an arms embargo against Israel. They didn't fire a single shot yet. Cut off the spade yet. And indeed, that was uh, a pivot that France made towards the Arabs. There's a postscript to this story. Uh, this particular ban, it didn't include parts, and it didn't include items that Israel had already paid for. In 1968, after the war, a bunch of Israeli paratroopers led by Rafi Eitan, they carried out a raid in Beirut against the PLO. President de Gaulle of France, he got so angry, he ordered a complete and full arms embargo against Israel, including weapons that were ordered and paid for already. The problem with that is that Israel had five 220 ton missile boats that were awaiting to be shipped to Israel. They paid for them. They had already paid for them and they said, no, sorry, we're not releasing them to you. In 1969, a operation on uh, on Christmas, uh, the Israelis, they came and they kidnapped their own boats. They pulled them out of the port, middle of the night, and they drove them, they, they, they took them to Israel, in the middle of the winter. Twelve hours later, the French get to their port, they see that there's five boats missing by the time they realize it was ready in Israel. When they got to Israel, they got retrofitted like the Israelis always do. Whenever they buy foreign arms, they always uh, they always play with them and amend them and tinker with them in a way uh, to their specifications. But regardless, France, the erstwhile ally of Israel, turned their back against them in their time of dire need. What about America? LBJ, after the death of JFK, he tells Israel, you lost a great friend in JFK, but you earned an even better friend in me. And let's see what happens when Israel actually has a need. So Abba Ibn comes and says, wait a minute, we made an agreement. And you promised that you will guarantee the armistice agreement of 56. So LBJ says, well, I don't know. I, I, that was under the Eisenhower administration, not under my administration. He says, well, we have a paper. He says, okay, well, let's go to the, the archives of the Pentagon, see if we can find the paper. And there, LBJ tells him, I'm sorry, we couldn't find the paper. We don't have that letter guaranteeing that we will do our share to uphold the deal. Moreover, he refused to sell Israel any weapons. And he threatened sanctions against Israel if Israel attacked first. When Israel asked, well, maybe you can give us a security guarantee. If they attack us, will you guarantee our security? Will you guarantee you come to our defense? They wouldn't do it. What LBJ offered, that they would steward an international convoy, all different kinds of ships, including an Israeli ship, to go through the Suez and go up the Straits of Tehran and provoke the Egyptians, goad them into attacking. But this was just pie in the sky. There was not a concrete plan and there was no date given. Basically, the Americans turned on the Israelis too. The Soviets, they threatened to attack Israel 
if Israel attacked first. And Israel, during, even during the war, they were very hesitant to attack Syria in fear that that would provoke a Soviet response. In Israel, the fears mounted. While Abba Ibn was in Washington, there was a report given to the cabinet that Egypt was rolling in equipment for shooting poison gas into the Sinai. Uh, this was obviously dire and desperate. And Eshkol commented to the cabinet in Yiddish, as he was wont to do, he was the last Israeli prime minister who thought in Yiddish. And whenever he wanted to really explain himself or speak emotionally, he would lapse into Yiddish. And he says to them, blood will flow in the streets like water. And the situation grew even more grave and a cloud of distress descended over the country. There were fears that Israeli cities laden with civilians would be bombed. There were terror and confusion and fears that a whole generation, thousands of soldiers would be killed. People, you know, this is only two decades after the Holocaust. People were fearful for another Holocaust. There were plans put in place to evacuate Israeli children to Europe, to get them away. Remember, the Arabs, every day, they say, we're pushing Israel into the water. We're killing everyone. Throughout the country, thousands are hurry, uh, are, are digging trenches, trenches. They're building shelters, filling sandbags. They take schools. Schools are being converted into bomb shelters. Every day, they're practicing the air raid drills. There's emergency blood drives all over the country. They have plasma flown in from abroad. Israel submits an urgent request to the Red Cross for surgeons. Uh, they prepare 14,000 hospital beds. Uh, they prepare antidotes uh, for poison gas victims. They stockpile food. And most ominously... Around 10,000 graves are dug in public parks to accommodate the anticipated dead. Workers are urged to buy bonds, equivalent of one month's salary, to help pay for the war effort. Thankfully, support begins to flood in to Israel from concerned Jewish and non-Jewish communities all over the world. There's massive demonstrations in support of Israel held in New York City and in London there's emergency fund drives to raise money for Israel all over the world. Scores of volunteers come to help with the efforts. There were so many of them that the Israel said, enough volunteers, just give us young men who are unmarried. That's the only ones that we want. And of course, non-Jews as well contributed. And most ironically, Germany, they ship Israel 20,000 American-made gas masks. Uh, to help fend off a, an anticipated poison gas attack. There's an exodus from the country. Uh, whoever can leave, flees. I know my grandfather had a yeshiva. Yeshiva was consisted of, of many students from all over the world. And the students that were not local to Israel, my grandfather encouraged them to flee. And they actually established a proxy, another yeshiva in Antwerp, where half the students left and they established a yeshiva there while uh, to study together while uh, while they're away in Europe. 
My grandfather also sent his writings with them. He thought it was over for everyone in Israel. There was a joke at the time that there was a sign hanging in Lod Airport saying, whoever, the last person, if you're the last person to leave the country, don't forget to turn off the lights. That was, that was the joke uh, of the time. And the problem was, one of the things that compounded uh, this fear and confusion was that the government was not doing anything. There was inaction, there was indecisiveness, there was disagreement, and the government itself was torn, and the cabinet was torn. We know this now. There was an intense political debate, what to do about this? And the major question, do we launch a preemptive strike or not? If you launch a preemptive strike, there's a danger that you can anger the Americans. Or worse, you could provoke the Soviets. Well, what to do? Well, if you don't, if you don't attack, you gotta wait, maybe perhaps a political option. But if you wait too long, you're gonna lose the momentum. You're gonna lose the initiative. You're gonna lose the element of surprise. And a scroll, he, he doesn't take a stand. And everyone is criticizing him from all sides that he's being indecisive. He's not doing anything. And every day he's being lambasted by Ben Gurion, who is the country's founding father, who's brooding in, in his Negev kibbutz and stay boker. Every day he's just berating Eshkol for not doing anything. And even the army, which was at large clamoring to go to war, but their, the leadership was also divided. The leadership was also divided. They always had plans and contingency plans for such an eventuality where they'd have to fight a multi-front war and, a, and, and a launch a preemptive strike. But Rabin, who was the chief of staff, who led the army, he was with a stroll. He was, he was trying to exhaust all political options before, before entertaining any military options. Now, his deputy, Azer Weizmann, he was the most vociferous that we have to attack, we have to launch a preemptive strike. Alongside him, you have, of course, Ariel Sharon, who always loves a good fight. But the cabinet split. And there's a fact, in fact, there's a, uh, a famous song that became popular at the time, Nasar Mechakele Rabin. Nasser is waiting for Rabin. Everyone's just waiting. It's even in, in Israeli history, it's called the waiting period. Everyone's just waiting for something to happen for three weeks of incredible tension. And Rabin, in his memoirs, he writes, well, if Nasser is waiting for Rabin, Rabin is waiting for Levir Stroll. Levir Stroll is waiting for his cabinet. His cabinet is waiting for Abba Ibn. And Abba Ibn is waiting for Johnson and the Americans. But things got very tense. And in fact, at the end of May... Rabin collapsed, and he was just out of commission. Uh, he argued later on in his memoirs that he felt the whole country was on his shoulders. He hadn't eaten, barely slept, subsisting on cigarettes and black coffee for days on end, and he just collapsed. And he was diagnosed with acute anxiety, and they actually tranquilized him. So he's in bed comatose while there's a war to be planned. His deputy, Azer Weizmann, comes to visit him and he tells Weizmann, you take over my position. Let's swap positions. You take over. Weizmann says, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. What's going to happen to the morale of the country? 
if that happens, where the head of the army suddenly abdicates a week before a war. But essentially, Weizmann did take over, and he was in control until Moshe Dayan arrived in the first day of June. On May 28th, Eshkol went to a radio station to address the nation, and the objective was to calm everyone down, to tell everyone, we're ready. If the Arabs attack, we'll repel their attack, but we're working with the United States to resolve the crisis peaceably, and this address backfired terribly. He wasn't. He hadn't slept. He had a recent cataract surgery, so he wasn't seen clearly. Uh, he had a cough and a cold. And he gets into the radio studio, and they give him the script. And the script is riddled with corrections, with last-minute additions. So he's live on the radio talking to the entire nation, and he's stuttering, and he's stammering. And he calls over his aide. He's like, what does this word even say? And he's speaking. He lapses into another language, starts speaking in Yiddish. And his barely legible speech achieves the opposite of its intention. Uh, Of course, the method of the speech is one thing, but people were dismayed. Sunlight, this is where we've come from? We now are relying on another nation to oversee our security. So instead of inspiring confidence, people became further worried. There's There's tales of soldiers huddling around the radio and spontaneously bursting into tears. Badian, Menachem Badian, who was part of the opposition at the time, he tells his wife while listening to the speech, it sounds like he's having a heart attack. And he, Badian, went to a stroll and actually told him to resign. And he went to Ben-Gurion and says, you should take over. We need someone like you who has experience and the people trust you. You should be the leader at this time. Now, we know, we know now that Egypt was planning an attack on May 27th, but they scrapped it because the Soviets called it off, there was fears that Israeli knew what was happening, and they they just scrapped their plans. On May 30th, King Hussein flies to Cairo, and he signs a defense pact with Nasser, and he gives over control of the Jordanian legion to Egyptian command. On the following day, the Iraqi army, at Jordan's invitation... They begin deploying troops and armor into Jordan, and Israel again calls up more IDF reserves. On June 1st, due to overwhelming public pressure, a national unity government was formed. Menachem Begin's Cherut party, which had been in the opposition since the beginning of the country, they joined the government. Eshkol reluctantly gave up the role of Minister of Defense. This was, uh, in Israel's history, the Prime Minister always was, as well, the Minister of Defense. He gave that to Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan was a member of the opposition Rafi Party. The party was founded by Ben-Gurion to wrestle power and to undermine Levia Shtron. And Of course, Moshe Dayan was the hero of the 1956 campaign. He was a daring commander. He typified the Israeli fighting spirit He was a brilliant and a reclusive strategy and a legend. And when he joined the government, it calmed many nerves across the country. And there's beginning to be a consensus amongst the cabinet to attack. 
And once Dayan takes over, he becomes the de facto leader of the war effort, not Eshkol and not Rabin. Uh, but even Rabin joined the fray. We're going to attack. Some in the cabinet still wanted to go with that convoy, but of course, that would ruin the element of surprise, so that scheme was abandoned. Finally, the cabinet authorized a preemptive strike with the intent of seizing the Suez Canal. They had no plans on taking Gaza. They had no plans on taking Jerusalem. And they assumed that internationally imposed sanctions will happen within 72 hours. In classic deception, after Moshe Dayan and the cabinet have that agreement, Dayan speaks to the reporters and he tells them, we still hope to negotiate a peaceful solution to the crisis. After the war, Hussein and Nasser, they hatched a plan to blame the humiliating defeat on the Americans and the British. They said that they colluded and they joined forces. It wasn't Israeli planes that destroyed us. It was American planes. Now, interestingly, Israelis, they actually tapped that, that creature actually listened to the conversation on YouTube. They tapped that phone call. So they have evidence this was a hatched scheme. But when they made those accusations, an American diplomat stationed in Cairo by the name of Richard B. Parker, he would go on to write a seminal book on diplomacy in the Middle East. He went over to Nasser and said to him, wait a minute, there's no aircraft within 300 miles of of Egypt. So Nasser tells him, there's no way they could have done this without help. And it was either you or the British, and we think it was you. So he tells the American diplomat. And the truth is that Nasser was right. The Israelis could not have done it without help. The odds were completely stacked against them. And without help, they would have surely uh, faltered. But they didn't get help from the British. They didn't get help from the Americans. It's likely that the Americans were helping the enemies with the USS Liberty more on that next week. But they did get help from the Almighty. The resulting war, which we will analyze next week, was as one-sided a war in the history of human conflict, especially given the huge advantages in terms of troops, in terms of tanks, in terms of airplanes, in terms of international support, in terms of geographical depth of the Arabs, and given that Israel is going to fight a multi-front war. I want to conclude with an interesting and unusual and not well-known vignette. The Gona Vilna, he famously said that all events are foretold in the Torah. But he doesn't specify what that means. But he does intimate that each verse in the Torah corresponds to a year of history since Adam. So if you do the math at home, right now we're in year 5777 since Adam, and the Torah contains 5,845 verses. What that means, I don't know. Just to help you with math. 1967 
was the 5,727th year since Adam by our calculations. What is the 5,727th verse in the Torah, which according to the calculation would correspond to that year? That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Chizku v'imtzu, al tiroh v'al ta'artzu mipneihem, ki Hashem alokecha, hu ha'holech imach, lo yarpacha, v'lo ya'azveka. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be broken before them. For Hashem your God, it is He who goes before you. He will not abandon you, nor will He forsake you. Indeed, as we'll see next week, it was plainly clear in the Six-Day War, the Almighty went before them, He did not abandon them, and He did not forsake them.